Thank you, choir. My heart was blessed by that. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And I have on there, we're going to read 4, 14 through 5, 10. We're just going to read the last paragraph of chapter 4. We really have found out that Hebrews is a unique book. It doesn't start out like any other book in the New Testament. It doesn't start out with a greeting from its author or a a blessing to its readers. It doesn't name where it came from or where it went. Uh, But uh, it seems to be a sermon letter or a letter that's written like a sermon. Either way, that uh, it's a pastor's heart to people who are thinking about leaving the Christian faith and leaving Christ. Listen to God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4. 14 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. May God bless that to our understanding. Let's pray. Father, encourage our hearts that we might come to the throne of grace even today with our need and that we might find grace and mercy at our timely manner. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. As a pastor, I have had lots of conversations with people before they leave, leave to go to another church. And the excuses or the explanations are always interesting and they're always valid. They discover all of a sudden they're really not Presbyterian. You know, I'm Baptist, grew up Baptist, and I just can't do this Presbyterian stuff. Other people say, you know, we just need a more contemporary style of music. You know, some drums and guitars and things like that. Uh, Some have left over seeking a more active uh, youth group. Some have left saying that they have more friends and fellowship over here. Uh, Some have left because of the budget. And some have left over building projects, not very many. Some have left over not being pastored well. I'm guilty. Uh, some have been left left have left because prayers are too long, and this is before Ben. But anyway, <laughs> but there are all sorts of reasons why people leave, and I want to say, remember that vow you took to uh, to, to the church to serve it to the best of your ability. You know, uh, but I've never had anybody come to me and say I'm leaving the faith. I'm leaving Christianity. I'm leaving not only the church, but I'm leaving this thing you call the faith. Now, what would you say? What would I say? I thought about it a lot because I read the article by Kristen Powers about her uh, complicated relationship with Tim Keller and the evangelical church. Kristen Powers was supposedly converted under Tim Keller's ministry, uh, mentored by his wife. 
later decided that she didn't like what the PCA stood for, then joined the Catholic Church, and then gradually left the Catholic Church. And in this article, she says she no longer even considers herself very religious. And I would think, and what if somebody came to me and said that? I'm leaving the faith. I'd say, what faith are you leaving? Do you no longer believe you're a sinner that needs a Savior? Do you no longer believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and came to save sinners? Do you no longer want to live a godly life? Those are the three vows you take when you join Covenant Presbyterian Church. Uh, do you remember what you vowed every Sunday morning in the Apostles' Creed? Do you no longer believe God created all things? Do you no longer believe that Jesus is His only Son, our Savior? Do you no longer believe that He died an atoning death and rose again from the dead and has ascended into heaven and is one day coming again? What don't you believe? And do you understand that when you leave the faith, you're leaving Jesus? You're leaving Jesus. And so what this writer is doing, he's trying to encourage these Christians that are contemplating leaving the church and telling them, you cannot leave your profession of faith without leaving the profession of your faith in Christ. They go together. And it reminds them of this, that you, you have this confession. Now, we don't know what that confession was. But we believe it was about Jesus because it starts off, this whole chapter starts off talking about Jesus. The whole book talks about Jesus. Jesus is better, 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 better 13 times. And so what they're doing is they're, they're leaving what they believe about Jesus. So he's reminding them what we do believe about Jesus. And it's this, we believe that in Jesus we have a great high priest. We have a sympathetic high priest. And we have a gracious high priest. We have a great high priest. You could really probably translate that, we have a better high priest. Not meaning that... Uh, etymologically meaning the Hebrew the Greek word there but meaning the understanding is Jesus is better than any other priest and all he's greater than any other priest compare him to anybody else he's he's better greater bigger wiser whatever and the writer gives a qualification for a priest in chapter 5 which I didn't think we had time to read but a priest had to be a man not just a male had to be a man from mankind and from a man from a male though he had to be a man he had to be de able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward he had to be appointed to the office he had to be called by god and jesus was all of that but what a priest made what the high priest's major job was was found on the day of atonement when he took two goats and he'd pray over the head of one of the goats and he would send that goat off into the wilderness symbolizing that that scapegoat would take away their sins. And then he prayed over the other goat and put on the sins of the people and took that goat into the Holy of Holies. Going through the outer court of the Gentiles, the women, the, the priests, the holy place, into the Holy of Holies. We're talking about he goes into the most holy place. And there he offers the sacrifice for the sins of all the people. On his, on his robe he has little bitty pockets where they're the names of every 
tribe of Israel's on there. He's representing everybody and everybody's sin. And he goes in there. And everybody's outside to see if the, the sacrifice is received. The, the priest even wears bells on the bottom of his robe because he, they want to know, is he still alive? Because if he doesn't do it right, there's a fear of death. And he does it every year. And what this passage says is you have a priest better than that. You have a priest that not only goes in once a year, but he's there forever. He doesn't have to repeat his sacrifice again. That's the reason when we take communion, we're not doing a sacrifice. It's not a mass. We're not re-sacrificing Christ. We're remembering the once-for-all sacrifice later in Hebrews. And that He is in heaven, not in the Holy of Holies. He is in heaven. And He's on the right hand of God. And He's there forever. And He makes intercession for you and for me that we might eventually make our way there. You have a better high priest than anybody else. And if you leave the faith, you're leaving Jesus. It's kind of like if I said, I'm leaving my marriage. And you say, you're leaving Sarah. And I go, no, I'm just leaving my marriage. I'm just had it with marriage. You'd say, that's impossible. To leave marriage, you have to leave the person you're married to. And so they're being told that, hey, you can't leave without leaving Jesus. Jesus is our confession of faith. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was one of the faithful pastors in Germany during Hitler's reign. And Bonhoeffer not only spoke out against Hitler, Bonhoeffer tried an assassination attempt. We can argue about whether he should have done that or not. He was arrested, imprisoned, and he was kept in prison until the very end of the war. And actually, as they heard about the troops coming, that they were hopeful that maybe they would get out, but the Germans were not that kind, and they had a hurry-up trial, and they decided that they would try Bonhoeffer. The night before he was executed, the people in the prison with him wanted him to preach a sermon because he'd been such a godly man and he preached on this he preached the sermon on Isaiah 53 by his wounds we are healed and his secondary passage was on praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom is the resurrection of the dead the day of his hanging he got up under the gallows he was stripped naked and he prayed one last time. Uh, somebody has found his last writing, and his last writing was this. The key to everything is in him, meaning Jesus. All that we may rightly expect from God and ask him for is found in Jesus. If we are to learn what God promises and what he fulfills, we must persevere in quiet meditation on the life, saying, death, suffering, and Sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. And no earthly power can touch us without His will. And that danger and distress can only drive us closer to Jesus. That's what this passage means. That when you talk about our faith, you can reduce it down to the person and the work of Jesus. Hold fast. 
to Jesus. The second thing he says is that you have a sympathetic high priest. The word sympathetic means to suffer with. That's really important. Or to suffer together. It means more than pity. It means more than sorrow. It means more than regret. It means that you suffer with the person. You're involved in it. You see, the philosophies of that day, the Stoics believed that God had no feelings. Because if God had feelings, you could manipulate Him by making Him feel a certain way. The Stoics just believed that He was detached from any feelings. And here Christianity comes and says, your Savior is sympathetic towards you. He suffers with you. There's a solidarity in your pain. It's His pain. We see that in Acts when Paul is converted. Paul is converted and what does God say to him on the road? Why are you persecuting me, Paul? Paul says, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting the church. They're the same thing. There's a union by faith that's mystical, spiritual, that's deeper than we can imagine. You can imagine when your child suffers, you suffer with them. When your wife or husband suffers, you suffer with them. One of the reasons that God suffers with us is He understands us because He has entered into our world. He's walked in our sandals, so to speak. He has been a weak man like you and me, a weak person. That that doesn't mean... Not very strong, but it's talking about his humanity. That he was a man, a real man. We talked about this last week. Scott and I had that conversation about our hypostatic union. And we were talking about how the Bible was not only God's word, it was the word of man. God inspired man to write the word of God. They, you know, are together because that's what we mean when we talk about the hypostatic union of Christ. He's fully God. And He's fully man. He's not part God and part man. He's not a mixture of God and man. He's fully God, fully man. And it's a mystery. But it's a mystery that we must embrace. He didn't seem to be a man like the docetists taught. He wasn't part man like some taught. He wasn't uh, a mixture of, you know, like H2O, you know, hydrogen and two parts hydrogen and oxygen making uh, something different. He was fully God and fully man. He, he had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to use a saw and a hammer. He had to learn Scripture. I remember when I first realized that. He didn't come with a, a thumb drive. You know, you pushed in and all of a sudden everything was at his back and call. You know, his search engine got it right away. He, he had to learn. He, you know, he he had to learn the language of the day, the customs of the day. He grew in wisdom and stature. I'm going to use this book again. And if you hadn't read this book, you really ought to read it. Uh, Gentle and Lowly. It was book of the year a couple of years ago. But here's what it says. Jesus is not Zeus. He was a sinless man, not a sinless superman. He woke up with bedhead. He had pimples when he was 13. 
he never would have appeared on the cover of men's health because he had no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 53.2 He became a normal man to normal men. He knows what it is to be hungry, thirsty, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. Had he lived today, every last Twitter follower and Facebook friend would have defriended him. When he turned 33, he was never, but he will never unfriend us. You see, Jesus is sympathetic because he resisted temptation in the same body that we resist temptation in. He didn't have secret power somewhere that he could do it. He was tempted in every way like as we are. His whole life was a temptation. Especially at the start of his ministry when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, compelled him into the wilderness where he confronted Satan. And Satan, after 40 days, he was hungry and Satan said, hey, turn these stones into bread. That wasn't just a... You know, Jesus wasn't snacking on angel food cake in the background. Forty days he was hungry. Like anybody would be. And then he took him up on the pinnacle. You all he jumped down and God will give his angels charge of you, quoting a and he was tempted to test God. And then bow down and worship me, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And he was tempted he was tempted to have the world without the cross, and he was tempted in every way. He was not tempted by every temptation that you face. What I mean by this is he wasn't tempted to covet somebody's car. I was going to get coffee the other day at Zoe, and there was a guy from uh, Martha's Vineyard sitting in a Maserati. Never seen one, but all of a sudden I wanted one. I started coveting one. You know, Jesus never coveted a Maserati. He might have coveted somebody's camel or donkey. Jesus never dealt with a teenager that was selfish, immature, emotional. But He dealt with apostles that were just like it. He never was tempted to look at something improper on the computer, but He still had to deal with lust for material things or power, to look at improperly at women. In every way, He was tempted like we are, because the core of every sin, the core of every sin, is that we doubt the goodness of God. And we doubt the will of God, the wisdom of God. We want to go our own way. In the garden, did God really say, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because you've become like God? God's not good. God's will's not good. So he was tempted. There's not a time that you can go and say that, you know, I just don't think he has figured me out. I don't think he gets me. I don't think he understands my background, how I grew up, the family I live in, the job I have, the congregation I have to put up with. The preacher I have to hear. But he did it all without sin. He never sinned. 
He never gave in. He never gave up. And then you begin to say, He can't identify with me. If, if He never sinned, He's never known shame, and He's never known failure, and He's never known defeat, and He's never known frustration like that. How in the world can He sympathize with me? Well, the reason you think that is you're thinking wrong. It's the other way around. You cannot identify with what Jesus endured. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes does not know what it would have been like to resist for an hour. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived sheltered lives by always giving in. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because He was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows the full, fully what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. You see, you've been hungry, but raise your hand if you've been hungry 40 days worth. You've been tempted, but have you ever been tempted with a kingdom? You've been tempted, but have you ever been tempted to avoid a cross or a death? You see, Jesus understands us. He's sympathetic to us. Those of us that know music, you know, there's this thing called sympathetic resonance. Y'all know what that is? Well, Tenny and I probably do. But anyway, sympathetic resonance is if you had two pianos in a room and they're both properly tuned and you hit middle C on this one, middle C would be faintly heard on this other one without ever striking a key. It sympathizes with that sound. That touching of that piano affects this piano as well. And here's what this guy said. Christ's instrument was just like ours in every way. And hear this. He took that instrument, that body, to heaven with Him. And in His priestly body. And when a chord is struck in the weakness of our human instrument, it resonates with Him. There is no note of human experience that does not play on Christ's exalted human instrument. Whatever we may be going through, there's not a note that we can play. Not a melody or a dirge. There's no minor key, no dissonant note that does not invoke a sympathetic resonant in Jesus, our Savior. He mastered the instrument while He was here on earth and He wears it in heaven. Do you want sympathy? Do not go anywhere else. Dare not go to any other place but to Jesus. He fully understands. That's good. That Jesus suffers with it. There's some way in which our suffering strikes a note in His heart. And so that leads us to the third point. We have a gracious, gentle high priest. It's the throne of grace that we have access to. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. The throne of grace. The throne. The throne makes you think of majesty, beauty, glory, reign, 
splendor, power, dominion, whatever. You know, you have a king, you know, he's surrounded by gold and beauty and stuff. But this is a power, this king is on a throne of grace. Calvin says this, the basis of this confidence is that the throne of God is not marked by naked majesty which overpowers us, but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. This is that we ought to always keep in mind that we might avoid the sight of God. The glory of God cannot but fill us with despair. Such is the awfulness of a naked throne. Therefore, in order to help our lack of confidence and free our mind of all its fears, the apostle clothes it, the throne, with grace and gives it a name to encourage us by its sweetness. It is as if they were saying, since God has fixed on His throne a banner of grace and fatherly love towards us, there's no reason why His majesty should ward us off from approaching Him. You see, we have that invitation and yet we, we don't believe it. I can go to the throne of grace. It's the throne of grace. It's to the undeserving. It's for the miserable. It's for those who need mercy. Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, wrote 57 other books. Now that's before typewriters and word processors and things like that. But he wrote this book, and it's called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And he says, we have this amazing ability to think that God is going to grow tired of us and give us a stiff arm and say, no, not today. And here's what Bunyan writes in Come and Welcome. No, wait, we consciously say approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. He responds, I know. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others would know, but there's a perversity down inside of me that's hidden from everybody. I know. Well, this thing, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand, Christ says. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. The only kind of person I'm here to help is that. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it, Christ says. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're directed towards you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll be fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will in no ways cast out. You see, that's our thinking. Can I go? doing what I did, thinking what I think, you can come with confidence. Daily, hourly, minute by minute, all the time, anytime. Come like a child to the Father, like a sinner to a Savior, like a servant to the King. Come. Ligon Duncan uh, used to be the pastor at First Pres in Jackson. Now he's the Chancellor of RTS. He tells a story about they had this classical pianist playing at an event. The next morning he had the duty of taking this guy to the airport. 
And he says, you know, I'm listening to music. And he said, I put it on classical music. Surely this guy likes classical music. So the guy gets in, hears the classical music. 30 seconds later, he said, can you please turn that radio off? And he says, uh, Ligon says, you know, first of all, I thought, what a miserable way to live, you know. And he said, can I ask you why you didn't like that music? He said, all I can hear are the mistakes, the notes they miss. That's the way we think God does with us. That we go up there and all He's going to hear is, you should have done this, you, you did this, but with the right attitude. You should have done it quicker. You should have done it to more people. Surely God knows, but in Christ, He loves us. And He's waiting there to give us mercy. Mercy is for the miserable. Grace is for the undeserving. Mercy is for the past. Grace is for the future and the present. And He'll give it to us in our time of need. He'll give us what we need. Not what we want. Not necessarily what we ask for. But what we need. And He'll give it to us in a timely fashion. Never too late. You have heard this illustration several times. And you'll probably, as long as I'm here, hear it a couple more. Corey Ten Boom hid the Jews from the Nazis. As the people were toted off, she was worried about what would happen in the future. Daddy, what will happen if they find that we're hiding the Jewish people? What will happen if the authorities find us? And her dad would say, he's going to give us grace. Well, when is he going to give us grace? And he used this illustration. Remember when we used to ride the train and you were little? And everybody had to have a ticket, but I had your ticket. When did I give you your ticket? And she said, right before we got on the train. And he said, that's when God will give us grace. Right when we need it. We need to have confidence in the throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a sympathetic Savior who has been in the flesh like us in this body, experienced all that we have and yet without sin, therefore was able to make a sacrifice for our sins because He had none to sacrifice for Himself. And He atoned for us and He sent our sins far away. And may we realize that in that act we also have access to the Holy of Holies because the veil has been torn and we can come into your presence any time and all the time. Bless us to the understanding of this text to our hearts that we might live as grateful, holy people. In the name of Christ, amen.